0: second sermon of four in this month of August um, on the local church and the importance and essentiality of the local church, that it is to be a high priority in our lives as Christians. Last week we talked about the local church as being the means by which God has given us to prove that our faith in Christ is genuine, and this week we come to the second one, which is on prioritization that the local church is to be a priority and the gatherings of the local church are to be a priority for God's people. Um, Gunnar Gunderson, no relation to Pastor Thad or Natalie or their family, I don't think. I think he spells it with an S-E-N on the end of his name rather than an S-O-N like our pastor, has written a helpful little booklet called What If I Don't Feel Like Going to Church? And he begins with this important word. He says, the most important time to be at church Is when you don't feel like it. He then offers a number of reasons why we might not regularly gather. In other words, why we might be tempted to not go to church. He gives several. First of all, there could be physical reasons. Many of us are dealing with some of those reasons these days with the onset of uh, uh, the Delta variant and various COVID issues. Um, But there's also exhaustion, there's disease, there's other forms of illness, there's chronic pain. He says uh, another reason besides spiritual or physical is spiritual. Sometimes we're in a dark place or we're living in hidden sin or Christ has lost a bit of his luster in our lives and we're feasting on the world and it has zapped our appetite for him. There's relational reasons like marital problems or broken friendships or an awkward personality or single or widowed lifestyle or feeling out of place around families or a lasting tension that exists between a brother or sister in the body. There's logistical reasons. Perhaps you live quite a distance away, or you work hours that are variable, or you're often traveling, or weekends offer time to catch up on homework or house projects. There's preferential reasons. Maybe we don't like the music, or the style, or the order of service, or we wish the sermon were shorter, never longer, or, and I don't want that either, or the coffee were better, or the people were friendlier. There's also uh, cultural reasons, right? Maybe we feel out of place in certain ways. I'm a blue-collar guy This seems to be kind of a white-collar church, or I'm an ethnic minority, or I'm a younger person, or I'm a college student. There's recreational reasons. A lot of us see the weekends as prime real estate for hobbies and adventures and tournaments and travel and kids' sports. There's missional reasons. We don't resonate with what's happening with the church in terms of ministry, so we check out. There's doctrinal reasons. Sometimes our convictions don't line up with those of the church. And there's transitional reasons, like convic- uh, like in the middle of a certain life transition, a possible job move, or some sort of life, life change. And then there's finally personal reasons. Some of us have had bad church experiences, perhaps even... Abuse in the church, or pastoral scandals, or church splits, and that makes it all hard to trust, love, and attend church again. Physical, spiritual, relational, logistical, preferential, cultural, recreational, missional, doctrinal, transitional, personal reasons. And I'm sure I left some off that perhaps you're even thinking of this very moment. And while these and other reasons that I have mentioned can be cause for not prioritizing the gatherings of the church, We need to appreciate that while our feelings and circumstances often influence our choices, they ought not to dictate our values. We need to remember that our feelings are often just symptoms of underlying causes. When we don't feel like going to church, something deeper is often going on. Not always, but often. Therefore, it's important to lay ourselves, so to speak, on God's operating table, And ask him, search my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, according to the prayer of Psalm 139. Ask God through his spirit, which we just sung, to search your heart with his word so that through his commands, through his instruction, we might accurately be treated in our souls. So this morning, I want to look at some of those underlying causes, Right? We've mentioned on the front end of the sermon various circumstantial issues that can impact prioritizing our, the, our attendance in and gathering with the local church. And these underlying causes are not all present in all of us all of the time. But they are present in some of us most of the time or most of us some of the time. So as a general practitioner, that's kind of what I've see myself as in the preaching of the Word. We can't get super specific with individuals. That's more for counseling and interpersonal discipleship and things like that. But for preaching, I'm trying to hit some of the major underlying causes that I think affect our motivation, our desire, and our love for gathering with and prioritizing the gatherings of the local church. So we're going to look at three of those this morning. Here's the first one. If we're going to prioritize gathering with the local church, then we must adequately understand the church. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all of you, brothers and sisters, don't understand the church. That's why I inserted that word, adequately. We understand that the church is a community of Christ followers that are committed to following Him together. But my contention is that we don't adequately understand the church. One of the reasons for our failure to prioritize the gatherings of the church is because we don't have a deeply biblical grasp of the church, of all that it is in its multi-dimensional form. Now, there are many evidences of this in our Christian culture all around us because many will even see the church as something of a club that you join. Church is not like, it's like a voluntary organization where membership is optional. But, or it's just a friendly group of people who share Jesus in common and gather weekly to sing and talk about it. Some Christians think it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without ever joining it. Some Christians think it's appropriate to baptize people without adding them into the membership of a local church, like adopting somebody and then kicking them out of your house. Christians take the Lord's Supper without ever joining a church, viewing it as almost their own private mystical experience with Jesus and not an activity for church members who have been incorporated into a local body together Christians can fail to integrate their monday to saturday lives with the saints of god with their other brothers and sisters in the church we can all be guilty of that some gathering some some Christians assume that we can just make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gatherings a few Sundays a month or more. We'll talk about that more next week. Additionally, Christians can make major life decisions without ever considering the effects of those decisions on their existing church relationships. We can buy homes or rent apartments with little regard for how those factors will influence distance and cost and our ability to engage in the uh, serving the congregation. We can fail to realize that we're partly responsible for both the physical and spiritual care of other members of the church, even of those we've not met. So you can see, just in the way I've phrased some of those diagnostic examples, that by and large we don't have as robust and adequate an understanding of the local church as the Bible would have us to have. So we need that. We need a more robust vision of the church. So let me try in the next couple of minutes to impart that vision to us. The New Testament uses three predominant images for the local church. It's a family of siblings. It's a body with parts, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's a temple with stones. Those are the three metaphors, images, predominant ones, not the exclusive ones, that the New Testament gives for the gathering of the local church, for the local church itself. It's a household of God, that is a a family with siblings, It's the body of Christ, that is, it's a body with members, and it's a dwelling place of the Spirit, that is, a temple with stones. Now, very quickly, I want you just to see these in the Bible, so grab your copy of Scripture. We're going to hop around just a couple of places so that you can get your eyes on these for yourself. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we begin. Ephesians 2, and I'm going to read these largely without comment, but we'll come back and apply what we see here as we move along in the sermon. Um, Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. Here we see that the church is a temple. It's a, it's a temple, not made with physical stones, but spiritual stones. Ephesians 2, 21 22. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, that is the local church, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We'll get to this text in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, too. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole... Now, notice he switches the metaphor here. He's not talking about temple anymore. He's talking about body from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Paul has two contrasting images for the local church. Uh, you've got a temple and you've got a body. And we see that in other parts of Scripture as well. Another place that I won't turn us to, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter picks up this language. I think appropriate so because Jesus used that with him. Remember that what, last week when he said, "On this church, you're, Peter. On your confession, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it." So he's picking up that temple idea. But Peter says that we are a we are a body of living stones being built together to be a house of God in which He dwells by His Spirit. One more place where we see this uh, family sort of metaphor is First Timothy chapter three. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 1 Timothy 3:15 notice what Paul says writing to Timothy he says if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth so he calls the church a household of God now what are the implication of these metaphors think about it you got a household You got a temple, you got a body. What are the implications of those metaphors? Families live together, body parts work together, and temple stones fit together. Togetherness is essential for the church to be the church. We we can't be the church in isolation. You can be a church member in isolation, but we can't be the church in isolation families live together, body parts work together, temple stones fit together. Some people have used these truths to try to discount church attendance. I hear things like, the church is a people, not a place. Or, it's not, about being, it's not about going to church, it's about being the church. And there's truth in both of those statements. But it misses the three predominant metaphors that are in the New Testament, which is togetherness, assembly, being in the same place. A body that's never together is more like a prosthetics warehouse than a family. A family that never has family dinners or outings or reunions won't be a healthy family if they're a family at all. And no temple stands firm when its quarried stones refuse to get together. It causes the temple to fall apart. You can't be the church without being together. And that brings us to the definition of the word church. All right, the definition of the word church that we use for church in the New Testament is not a uniquely religious definition. Ekklesia is the Greek word. It's, it's where we get the term ecclesiology, which just means our doctrine of the church. What we teach about the church from the Bible is ecclesiology. It's pulled from that Greek word, ekklesia. But ekklesia is just a generic term for an assembly. It's used in the Bible for non-religious assemblies as well as church assemblies. But the point is, the local church is an assembly. It is a gathering together of people in the same place at the same moment. If a church never meets, it's not a church. Meeting isn't just something churches do. Meeting is what the church is. God has saved us, yes, as individuals, but to be a corporate assembly so what do we see this is th- this requires us to get a more adequate understanding of the church right body with parts family with members temple with stones ecclesia meaning assembly we got to be together we got to come together to be the church and this is why we see in the new testament churches regularly gathering The New Testament writers instruct churches to do activities that can only be done when they're meeting together. Teach and admonish one another. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Read scripture publicly. Encourage one another. Share the Lord's Supper. None of these can happen in a vacuum. It requires an assembly. While it's true that many of these things can and gladly do take place among smaller subsets of our church, like on a Tuesday night Bible study, or a Saturday morning men's breakfast, we should assume that they belong first and foremost to the main congregational gathering, given the biblical emphasis on the whole church meeting together. So my point is this. For the church to be the church, it must assemble together in space and time. As a household of God, the church must be together and eat together. As the body of Christ, the church must gather together to strengthen one another. As the temple of the living God, the church must assemble together to offer the spiritual sacrifices of worship. Now, I want to say this lovingly, but you can't go to the church online. You can watch the church. You can, in some sense, participate with the church, but you can't go to church. The church is the place where the church is physically meeting in the same location at the same time, and it becomes a... It becomes a reinstitution of the reality of what it is. In other words, it means that the church re-churches itself and demonstrates that it's a church every time the congregation gathers, specifically on the Lord's Day, because that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. You can't go to church on a bass boat. You can go bass fishing on a bass boat. You can listen to a sermon on a bass boat, you can sing songs on a bass boat, but you can't go to a church. To be the church, you've got to gather with the church. Of of course, the church is more than gathering. I don't want to say that you can't ever, you know, we cease altogether to be the church when we're not gathered. That's not what I'm saying. But we can't be the church without it, and it's never less than gathering to be the church. So let me say a word about that, about, about live streaming. We live stream our services, all right? We are glad to do it because we have ill people from time to time. We want you to encourage your families to watch that don't attend a church anywhere. Um, we, we encourage sick families or shut-ins or those who need to take advantage of that to do that. We live stream our services on Facebook and on our website and on YouTube, all for the benefit of our community, for our family and friends outside of Christ, and for those of us who are sick in our assembly who may be providentially hindered from attending. But let me say this. It is not a substitute. Okay? It is supplemental, not a substitute. I, I do not want, if you're an able-bodied, well-member, to think that if you are watching the church online, that you are fulfilling what God requires of you. I would, we would be derelict in our duty as pastors if we said that to you. Now, if you, now we're not trying to guilt you either. That's why it's there, and we're not going to police it. We're not interested in saying, all right, who was on there this week? Oh, I know what their reasons are. We don't do that. Okay, we, you're adults, we love you, we trust you, we, have, we, we know that, that if we brought you into membership, you love the Lord Jesus Christ, and you want to be with his people when you can. So that, that's not why I'm saying that. But the point is, is that we understand some of the liabilities that go with that. But let's remember, we can't be the church online. I don't say that to add a burden to those who legitimately need this option. But for all able-bodied Able-mind Christians of HBC, you don't just need to hear songs and preaching online. You need to sing with God's people around you. You need to hear a sermon in the same room as the rest of your brothers and sisters. You don't just need to watch a service. You need to participate in a service. Non-Christians don't just need to see a video. They need to be in here with us. They need to be invited into our services so they can hear Christians around them singing and worshiping. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 says. The church is a family, the body is a temple, and that requires us being together in the same place. Secondly, not only do we sometimes not adequately understand the church, that it has to be together because of these metaphors, but secondly, Sometimes we we don't prioritize the gatherings of the church because we don't experientially need the church. We don't experientially need the church. Now, we know from the Bible and from 1 Corinthians 12, which we just read and we're going to look at more in a moment, that every Christian has a place in the local church. That's what Paul is saying. No matter if you consider yourself a big toe or the nose or the elbow or a ward on the lower back, Um, you uh, you are a part of the church, you are necessary, he says, you are invaluable, and he even says, among the weaker parts, they're the most important. Because in the kingdom, the last will be first, and the first will be last. So every Christian is needed within a local church, and every Christian is needy for the local church. We are needed, and we are needy. Every Christian, therefore, is to commit to be members of a local church because they are both needed and because they are needy. And that's true for all of us. I want you to look again at 1 Corinthians 12 that we, that we just read a few moments ago. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. But the passage underscores that truth, that we are needy and needed. The body metaphor is being used here to describe the church. We are one body with many members the foot or the ear can have a tendency, Paul says in verses 15 and 16, to feel like they don't belong. Now, I don't know why he chose the foot and the ear. I like ears and feet myself, at least my own feet. Ears are gross. You would say the same thing about me. you know. But, but ears, they're nice. We hear with them. you know. It does a lot better. It, it's certainly important that you all have ears for what I'm doing right now. But, but he says ears and feet sometimes feel like they don't belong. But Paul stresses in verses 17 through 20, they're needed. So our feelings don't dictate our engagement with the church, do they? It doesn't like, oh, I don't feel like I'm needed. God says you're needed. So who are you going to believe, your feelings or God? So we say, okay, I don't feel the need right now, but God says I'm needed, so I need to go. You see how orienting our lives to God's word helps us with our feelings? And then, Paul says, the eye and the head, contrary to the foot and the ear, can have the tendency to think they don't need other church members. That's what he says in verse 21. But Paul reminds them that they need other church members in verses 22 to 25. Paul teaches, therefore, that no matter whether we feel like we're needed or we feel like we're needy, we need the church. We need to gather with the church in order to be healthy Christians. So if and when we experientially feel like we don't need to gather with the church, we need to do two things. We need to go back to 1 Corinthians 12, we need to prayerfully read it, and we need to say to our own souls, I need the church and the church needs me. We need the church whether our feelings say we do or not, and the church needs us whether they say they do or not. The truth is, God has placed, this is verse 18 of chapter 12, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. God has sovereignly orchestrated our body, our local church body, to be the body He wants it to be. Every member that's a member of our body is a member by God's sovereign appointment. Every gifts that all the gifts that all of us have as members, all the graces and character qualities and Christ likeness and sins that we struggle with and all those things that are present in our lives are all there by God's appointment. So it's understanding that it's not how I feel, but it's what the Bible says and what God intends through the gathering of the local church that is to govern how I think about it. Our membership in the church, brothers and sisters, is no accident. It's divine design. There is no one here who is a spare part sent to the junkyard. There are no bench warmers here in our body. There are no third feet or second noses. There's no one here who is not necessary and who doesn't need the rest of the church. That includes you, which is really quite exciting, isn't it? God has chosen to include you and use you in this body. You can make a real, lasting, eternally significant difference by being a part of of this church your church is vital to you, and you are vital to it. Now, sometimes, let's just be honest, we fail to prioritize the church because we don't feel like we need it. All right? Let's be honest. But we need to be careful about overestimating our ability to run the Christian life in isolation. Proverbs 18.1, Whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, he breaks out against all sound judgment. Jesus warned of the cares of the world and the desire for other things entering in to choke out the seed of the Word in our lives. Paul warned of being caught up in the things of this present life, which cause us to neglect the eternal things. Especially in the West, where we're well-fed, well-clothed, largely well-employed, in good health, have good existing family and friend connections. If we miss church we fail to attend the Lord's Supper, if we don't gather for prayer, if we don't participate in ministry, what harm will it do? What harm will it do? Now listen, you may feel like you don't need the church for a good reason. You may be doing well spiritually, but that shouldn't stop you from gathering because we gather together not just because we feel a need for the church, but remember, because the church needs us. I'm reminded of a story that Mark Dever often shares. This will be, my, I think, my last Dever quote from the sermon. He had a friend in the United Kingdom that, he used, to, that used to come just in time for the sermons. So he would, he would, he, Pastor Mark would watch him slip in through the back door or the front door of the church and slip in right at the time for the sermon and then duck out during the closing, closing hymn. And one day Mark asked him, why was he doing this? And his friend responded, I don't get as much out of the rest of the service. I really just am interested in the sermon. So Mark asked, have you ever thought about joining the church? The response wasn't very encouraging. Join the church, his friend asked incredulously. Why would I want to do that? If I join the church, these people might just slow me down. Mark replied, have you ever thought perhaps God would call you to speed them up? We'll talk about this more next week, but Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 warns of the danger of neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. But why does the author warn of that danger? It's not the reason we typically think of. We insist that those who neglect to participate in the local church will encounter spiritual temptation, spiritual decline, or even spiritual death. And while all this is true, that's not the emphasis of the passage. Here's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says. And let us consider how to stir one another up to loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the passage does warn of the serious consequences of skipping the assembly of the church, which we'll talk about more next week. But its focus is not what we might expect through our individualism, western kind of eyes. This passage does not warn us that when we skip church, we put ourselves at risk. This passage warns us that when we skip church, we put other people at risk. The first sin of skipping church is the failure to love other people. Especially your brothers and sisters that you are in covenant with to help to heaven. Gathering with God's people is not first about being blessed. It's about being a blessing. It's not first about getting. It's about giving. As we prepare to worship on the Lord's Day, on Sunday morning, our first consideration should be, how can I stir up my brothers and sisters to love and good deeds as I gather with them? they got another week in the world ahead of them. I want to be a source of encouragement to them. So we should approach Sunday deliberately, eager to do good to each other, to be a blessing to each other, to pray for one another, to check in on one another, to encourage one another. In those times where we feel our zeal waning, when we feel the temptation to skip out on a Sunday or withdraw altogether, we should consider our God-given responsibility to encourage. The text is not about us. The text is about them. The text is not first and foremost about what am I getting out of the service, although we, thankfully, we are blessed, I hope, by our services, but the reality is it's about other people. So our commitment to the local church is far more than a commitment just to Sunday morning services. It's a commitment to other people through all of life. It's a commitment to worship with them, yes, once or twice a week, And then to fellowship with them, to serve them, to pray for them throughout the week. It's to bind ourselves together in a covenant in which we promise to do good to one another, to make each other the special objects of our attention and our encouragement. It's the promise that we will identify and deploy our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others so that we can serve them, strengthen them, and bless them. Now, I know with, with, with a lot of times the reasons that we don't, uh, ga- uh, prioritize gathering with the church is because, first of all, we can you know, fail to adequately understand, yeah, to, 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 to be the church, I've got to be with the church. I've got to gather. I mean, body has parts, temple has stones, family has members. I mean, we've got we to gotta be together. And then, secondly, we can think, well, I don't experientially need that. I don't feel a need for it right now. And I, d- and I just want to tell you that that already reveals a chronic desperately needed to be addressed, spiritual need in your life. When you feel like that you can coast on life without Jesus mediated through other people, that is dangerous. That is dangerous. And we need to experientially recognize I'm needed and I'm needy and I'm needy. And to realize that it's not first and foremost about who's saying I love you to me, and who's praying for me, and who's talking to me, and I haven't been... You see how that orientation is just completely backwards from the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. The go- Jesus didn't die for you so that you can keep living for yourself. He died for us, 2 Corinthians five fourteen, so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. The gospel turns us outward. The gospel says, I exist for them now. I exist to be an encouragement, to be a blessing, to be a help to my brothers and sisters. Thirdly and finally, sometimes we don't uh, prioritize gathering with the church because we don't adequately understand it or we don't, or we don't experientially need it. Thirdly and finally, because we don't, intention, we, must, we don't intensely value it, intensely value the church. Now, It is true that the Bible talks about worship as something we can do in all of life. Praise the Lord that we're not just confined to this physical space to worship God. Romans 12.1 says that we're to make our bodies a living sacrifice. That's our spiritual offer of worship to God, whether we're with our families, whether we're at home, whether we're at work, whether we're at play. Whatever the case may be, we are to give our lives to worshiping and glorifying God. Praise the Lord for that truth. But that is not all that the Bible says about worship. Worship is something that can happen anytime, anywhere, in complete solitude. But there's something unique and irreplaceable that happens when the church gathers together that can't be replicated in other environments. give you a few texts on that. Jesus is among his people when they gather in a way that he isn't when they scatter. When we gather together, Jesus is uniquely present. Jesus is promised to be present where two or three are gathered in his name, Matthew 18 through 20 or 1820. And remember, that's in the context of church discipline. That's in the context of the church being told about an unrepentant member after being addressed personally, and with two, hey, this brother, sister's in sin, and then he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That's a a church gathering. It's not just me and two of my Christian friends. Okay, it's a church gathering. I mean, if you and your two of your church friends are executing church discipline on your fourth friend, I guess that could work. You know, depending if you're practicing the Lord's Supper and baptizing and preaching the word. So anyway, but God is present in a unique way when his people gather when they're not gathered. So Ephesians five eighteen through 19 says that we are filled with the Spirit when we sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. God also promises to be specially present when we observe the Lord's Supper. Here's what Don Whitney says about these truths. God will manifest his presence in congregational worship in ways you can never know, even in the most glorious secret worship. That's because you're not only a temple of God as an individual, but the Bible says, and far more often, that Christians collectively are God's temple. God manifests his presence in a different way to the living stones of his temple when they gather together than he does when they are apart. Now, think about that. We as individual Christians are all temples of the living God. We all have the Holy Spirit living in our life. And I know this is going to be a flawed illustration because the Spirit can't be confined uh, to, a, to your body, to your location. It's not like he just pieces himself out, right? Like he divides himself up in 10 trillion pieces, and then he gives a piece to everybody. That's a heresy. That's wrong. Don't believe that. But um, what I'm saying is if we all possess the fullness of the Holy Spirit and we all come together as living stones, as Peter says, to gather to become a spiritual temple, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is present in that local assembly. Right? It just, it, it, it's a unique expression of the Spirit's ministry. It's not like he's not fully present in the earth, but it's a uniqueness there. Now, perhaps no one has made the point more strongly or poignantly about the Lord special presence when, when his people gather for corporate worship than the Puritan pastor David Clarkson, who ministered in London in the, in the late 1600s. He was John Owen's assistant, and then later he became his successor. Um, he had an extensive sermon that he preached that's become somewhat well-known, at least it was well-known in his day, and people still reference it from time to time, on Psalm 89, verse 2. Psalm 89, verse 2 says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. And Clarkson draws a theological principle from that verse that God prefers when Christians gather together publicly than when they worship him privately or individually. More so. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Clarkson's point was that the Lord delights in the gathering of his people for worship in Jerusalem even more than all the private worship of individuals and families in their houses. Now, since the death and resurrection of Christ in the New Testament, the people of God, as we've seen, are the living stones that comprise the temple of God built upon Christ as the chief cornerstone. So the gates of Zion today that are referenced in Psalm 89 are found where the true church gathers to worship God in spirit and truth. We are in, right now, in a very real sense, the gates of Zion as we gather as God's people. Now, there's a fuller manifestation to that to come physically when we get there, to be with God forever, but we have entered his kingdom and we are partaking of his benefits even now. D.A. Carson describes something of what Clarkson means by God's special presence in worship when he writes, when we come together and engage in the activities of corporate worship, we encourage one another, we edify one another, and so we often feel encouraged and edified. As a result, we are renewed in our awareness of God's love and God's truth and we are encouraged to respond with adoration and action. In this subjective sense, all the activities of corporate worship may function to make us more aware of God's majesty, God's presence, God's love. And it's this more that makes it unique. I think that's helpful. Now, a couple more passages and then we're going to conclude. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2, words that I trust are familiar to you. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, the question, what were the circumstances in the psalmist's life that led him to feel that way? That led him, made him feel like a baby deer that was wandering in the desert, desperate to get a drink of water somewhere? David was in exile, hiding from Saul in the wilderness and cut off from being able to assemble with God's people and worship. You say, Pastor Mark, are you sure you're making that up? No, I'm not making it up. The very next verse tells us what happened while David was experiencing this trial. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? When will I be able to get in the place where God is? When can I gather again? in the assembly of God's people. This was the worst trial that David could think of while he was experiencing this isolation in exile, hiding from Saul. He was deprived of worshiping with God's people. David in exile was able to commune with God in the cave or wherever he was hanging out. He wrote plenty of psalms in there. So evidently God was with him by the Spirit, right? <laughs> God was inspiring there, that. But David still missed Even while he prayed and wrote scripture inspired or spirit inspired poetry, he was cut off from public assembly where God met with his people. And as a result of his separation, David's soul thirsted. Much of what David possessed in public worship was only in types and shadows. We got it way better, brothers and sisters, because we, as the new covenant church, we have worship in the full light of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. So how much keener should our sense of loss be than David's? Here's the degree that it's better for us. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of the trumpet or the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. He's talking about the worship on Sinai. For they could be under that order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You should hear that. You can come to God. You get to come to God. We get to come to God every Sunday. We get to come to God every time we gather. We get to come to God. They, David couldn't even go directly to God, he was God's king. He had to have it mediated through a priest. But we get to go right to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, we must cease, brothers and sisters, taking gathering for worship for granted. If God would ever remove this sacred privilege from us, like he did for a short while during the pandemic, and he may do again in the future, who knows what's going to happen with all this stuff going on. If we have a huge health outbreak or problems, We certainly don't want to make that assumption yet, but still, we should be eager to exclaim every Sunday, I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Not, I was sad, I was troubled, I was inconvenienced. Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather watch the door as a security guard than go have a blast somewhere else. As it is with the Lord, so it should be with his people. If the Lord delights most in these sorts of things, should we not as his people? So let me conclude with a few practical takeaways. What is adequate understanding, experiential needing, and intense value look like on the ground level? Well, I think it means that we make weekly attendance a priority, not bi-weekly or monthly. We make weekly gathering a priority. We show up. We're determined to because we now adequately understand we can't be the church without it. We experientially need it whether we feel like it or not. We're needy and needed. And we intensely value it because it's the place where God has specially planned to reveal himself. We won't just be there when we happen to be in town with nothing else going on. you see how reverse that is? Some of us need to grab onto our lives with a little more intentionality, right, and put those big rocks in first, the big rock of church attendance, right, that goes down into that bucket first, then we fill in the pebbles of other things. Sometimes it means that we'll be there when we've prepared uh, to cut a weekend trip short, to be back in time for church. Now, this doesn't mean, let me say this up front, We all go on vacations. We're all happy that you go on vacations. We love that we get those chances to rest, and we're okay that it bridges over a Sunday, okay, as long as you're making a point to try to, I mean, ideally, the ideal thing is where I'm not here, I want to gather with another local body somewhere to be an encouragement to them, all right? But we understand there are certain circumstances. But what I'm talking about here is prioritization, all right? The weather's bad, I'm going to go. As long as it's not slick and we've canceled, right? When we are tired or we'd rather have a little time for ourselves, we're going to go. We recognize that we need this kind of fellowship and encouragement every single week of our lives. And that's actually a small thing because Hebrews 3 says you need it daily. Not just every week. You need it daily. But this is what it means, brothers and sisters, to be devoted Right, Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, the prayers. That means gathering with the church. They devoted themselves to this. Now, why did he have to say devoted? Why couldn't he say they did this? Because devotion requires effort. Devotion requires sacrifice. Devotion requires saying no to good things to say yes to better things. Devotion requires saying, ah, that's a good idea, this is a great idea. So that's what devotion is. It's, it's the same word used in Acts 6, talking about the widow's distribution of food, where Paul and the other apostles say, uh, we can't devote ourselves to this because we are called to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word in prayer. In other words, he's saying no to a good thing in order to embrace a better thing. And then he, he doesn't say we don't do anything about that good thing. We make deacons, and we recruit them to care in specific ways in these ways. So devotion, brothers and sisters, is not some laid-back, feet-up-on-the-couch kind of word. It speaks of spending ourselves, using our time, our gifts, and investing our emotions and our heart in something. And it speaks of doing it gladly. Right? Because we, by God's grace, have finally found, by His grace, something worth giving our lives to. To God and to His kingdom. And the embassies of God's kingdom are local churches, families of God's people, bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's in remembering what the church is and whose the church is that makes us work hard, gladly, and keeps us joyfully devoted. May the Lord help us to prioritize the gatherings of his local church based on an adequate understanding of the church, of an experiential need for the church, and of an intense value of the church. Let's pray together. Father, you are good to us to give us a family. You are good to us to incorporate us into a household. You are good to us to make us a local body. With many members, you are good to us to make us a temple of living stones. Thank you for not making the Christian life a lone ranger endeavor. Thank you for making the Christian life a gathered endeavor that we need one another that we are needed by one another help us to never think that chronic or habitual or inconsistent non-attendance is ever helpful to us spiritually or to anybody else spiritually lord atrophy can happen slowly but it happens and sometimes it happens faster than we would ever imagine it would happen all it takes is is a slight tilt of the rudder, and a ship goes a thousand miles off course. Lord, make us jealous. Jealous to obey your word. Jealous to love one another well. Jealous to prioritize each other over ourselves. Jealous to put our presence here among the assembly as much as we can. I know we all are at various seasons of life and phases of life and challenges in life. But as much as you allow, as much as you permit, make us to be faithful in this way. Make us to prioritize what you prioritize. And make us to love it, not as an obligation or as a duty, but as a path of life by which we can live out our calling and walk worthy of what we have received in the gospel. We pray all this for your glory and in Jesus' all-powerful saving name. Amen stand and worship again as we sing our chains.